to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 46, where we go back, back to the to past the and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on Chris and Reggie at podbean.com. Actually, it's .podbean.com. <laughs> Uh, that little cut and paste action there probably from my mistake uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and from the top of the Sears Tower in the Windy City which I think actually is no longer the Sears Tower but probably uh, not. it will always be the Sears Tower in my heart this week we are actually doing number three of what will you know ultimately be a four part Image Firsts series uh, you know, we did Youngblood, we've done Wildcats, and now we're doing Savage Dragon number one. Cover date July 1992, Baptism of Fire is the title. Written, penciled, and inked by Eric Larson. Colors by Greg Wright. Letters by Chris Iliopoulos. Edited by Janine, Janie Wong. Uh, release date is not listed, and covered, cover price is $195 USD, $2.35 Canadian. Mm-hmm. Now, as we usually do, before we get into the book, we're going to talk about the creator. And it's only one. Luckily, it's Eric it's just, Lawson. Just the one fella. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he was born uh, December 8th, 1962 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, although he grew up in Bellingham, Washington, and Albion, California. He recalls, I've drawn comics for as long as I can remember. Long summer days and weekends throughout my childhood were spent writing and drawing on eight and a half by 11 paper, folded in half and stapled up the center. Uh, his first paid work in comics was for the anthology series Megaton, which we will get to in a bit. Uh, he would send his Megaton work around, including to AC Comics, where he was offered a gig on Captain Paragon and the Sentinels of Justice, uh-uh. inking issue number three, <laughs> this is 1985, uh, before moving on to uh, Pencil, the final three issues of that series. Uh, around this time, he received a fill-in spot on Marvel's Thor. It was uh, issue 385, came out November of 87. Uh, he moved on to uh, Eclipse Comics. And he began working on the new DN agents, starting with issue number 13. This is October 1986 cover, uh, release, uh, what is it, cover date. Yeah. That's the word. Yeah. <laughs> with writer Mark, are we saying Avanier? I'd say Evan, Avanier. Evanier. But... Evanier. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a friend of Kirby's. He's that guy. Yeah. Uh, now, while working on DN agents, he received a fill-in on Amazing Spider-Man. This is issue 287, April 1987, and he did both projects at the same time because you can't pass up Spider-Man if you're given the opportunity. Especially at that point in your, in your career. I imagine, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is, you know, definitely is a guy that gets down and gets to work. Uh, this would lead to more fill-in work from DC Comics. He did Secret Origins number 13, cover date April 1987, penciling a Nightwing origin story written by Dan Mishkin, featuring some... In Larson's words, heavy-handed inks by Mike DiCarlo. They and, are. And he also penciled Adventures <laughs> of Superman number 431, August 1987, cover date. So Spider-Man and Superman in the same year. He didn't Ooh. think it was that big a deal, though, since he was just a fill-in guy. You know, that's not his dream. Uh, he would receive a 12-issue continuity contract with DC Comics, where he would draw two and a half issues of The Outsiders. This is the Baxter book uh, version. And 10 issues of Doom Patrol, which is where I first remember seeing him. So this was Outsiders number 24, 27, 28, and Larson couldn't escape the Manhunters. <laughs> and uh, Doom Patrol, volume 2, number 6 through 16, plus annual number 1. This is what we call the Paul Kupperberg run, yep. even though Eric Larson uh, did the bulk of it also in on art. Uh, he recalls FUBAR in the transition, though, between he and outgoing uh, Doom Patrol artist Steve Lytle, which is really how the book was promoted as being a Steve Lytle joint. Uh, he says, I was an idiot. It didn't occur to me that I should have made an attempt to erase the tra- to ease the transition somewhat. He did one thing. I did another, and the transition was pretty jarring. The art took a complete 180, and people hated it. And, you know, Chris, I mean, you know, I don't remember it being like that. It it is wildly different, but I, it is the, different. Yeah. At the time reading it, this is one of those you know comics I read when it came out. Uh, I don't re- even remember noticing, but maybe I was just too much of a dumb little kid to even like pay attention. <laughs> my my first time reading uh, his the, the Kupperberg Doom Patrol run was uh, probably probably about ten years ago. So and I already I was already familiar with Larson mm-hmm. at that point. So I noticed that it was him, and it was different from uh, Lytle. But I, I, you know, it's weird because I mean. 
you know, I was around when Liefeld took over for uh, over, over for Blevins on New Mutants, and yeah. despite how <laughs> despite how history remembers Lee, Lee Field, uh, <laughs> it was exciting. It was it was nice. It was yeah. fun. It was different. And uh, I think uh, I think I would have seen it the same way with Larson had I been reading in uh, like eighty six, eighty seven. Uh, now, after his stint on Doom Patrol, Larson took on some Marvel work, including a Strange Tales one-shot, which I believe featured The Thing, and a fill-in on Incredible Hulk. This is issue 346. At this point, he was offered a regular gig on Punisher. He recalls, Punisher wasn't my ideal gig, but it was a foot in the door. Uh, he would go on to provide art for Punisher number 21 through 25, that's July through November 1989. Uh, he wound up leaving Punisher to work on a Nova serial that would appear in the weekly anthology series Marvel Comics Presents. Uh, this is a favorite, one of Larson's favorite characters. However, it wasn't to be. Uh, this was 1989, meaning we were just a one year away from needing a team of heroes for the 90s. And so Nova was needed elsewhere, <laughs> the new warriors. Um, he, he was uh, rather annoyed at this because he had left the high-profile Punisher series for this. He was given a, an Excalibur serial in its place. Yeah, that's definitely a little bit of a downgrade in uh, <laughs> stature, yeah. <laughs> now, this uh, this Excalibur serial would appear in Marvel Comics Presents, numbers 31 through 38. This is uh, November through December 1989. Remember, uh, that's a weekly series. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, following the MCP stint, uh, Lawson parlayed a fill-in gig on Amazing Spider-Man into a full-time job. He took over for Todd McFarlane, who was being given his own Spider-Man title to write and draw. Uh, the fill-in issues were issues 324 and 327. That's November of 89 and December of 89, respectively. Uh, his regular run lasted from 329 through 350. This is February of 90 to August of 1991. Nice, nice Not run. Not bad. Yeah. yeah, he said that because they did the uh, bi-weeklies. Uh, uh, yeah, they did bi-weeklies in the summers, so it was uh, 15, oh. uh, 15 issues per year, and he said he did all 15, which wow. is uh, that's pretty. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Um, he would then transition to the adjectiveless Spider-Man, again, following Todd McFarlane. Uh, he filled in on issue number 15. This is October 1991, which featured a team-up with uh, for, with Spider-Man and the Beast from the X-Men. Uh, he took over on a temporary full-time basis from issues 18 through 23. <laughs> this is uh, January through June of 1992. Uh, this was He was doing this while he was waiting for yet another Nova <laughs> series to be approved by editorial. Wow, he really wanted to do that Nova miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right around this time that Rob Liefeld ran an ad in Comic Buyer's Guide for his self-published extremist title from the Extreme Studios. This would be, of course, become Youngblood, and Marvel threatened to can him if he went through with it. Eric recalls having met Todd McFarlane while Todd was working on Infinity Inc. for DC Comics. He lived in Bellingham, Washington, while Todd was living in nearby Vancouver. Eric would meet Rob Liefeld at WonderCon, and they all became pals. Rob had a deal with Malibu Comics' Dave Ulbrich about putting out a book independently. Eric recalls, The whole image experiment didn't start out as a thing where we were all necessarily leaving Marvel. Rob had intended to have a hand in producing X-Force. Jim Valentino had wanted to stick on Guardian to the Galaxy. Filling in on Spider-Man was a temporary gig for me while I waited for Nova to get approved. But Larson was on board with Image right away, saying he didn't see the harm in it. Nova had been approved, but only as a miniseries. But again, it wasn't to be. Uh, Lawson explains that Liefeld and McFarlane were aggressively pursuing other hot talent for the venture. Uh, they were, he recalls, they were at a con in New York, and Todd was actively recruiting guys. He wanted the guy who he felt was Marvel's golden boy, Jim Lee. Mark Silvestri got sucked in because he was sitting next to Jim. At the time. Oh no! <laughs> now, when the whole image thing went down. Larson looked uh, to his cavalcade of characters he created as a child. Uh, when asked why he chose to run with Dragon, he says, The Dragon was the only guy I had. It was always my intent to do the Dragon at some point. Uh, his Image Studio would be called Highbrow Entertainment, and it's worth mentioning that one year before Image launched, uh, Larson suffered a, suffered a house fire, which destroyed all the comics he'd created as a child. Hmm, convenient that. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the character we'll be reading uh, the, the about and sort and sort of the debut, although not really, as we will also get into later. Savage Dragon. This was a childhood creation of Eric Larson, inspired by characters like Captain Marvel, Batman, Speed Racer, and would you believe the Incredible Hulk? Hmm. Sort of, sort of similar. 
sort of green, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's a very different character from the one we'll be meeting today, though. Uh, Larson would return to his old character well to rework some of them into the modern dragon canon. Eric says, the dragon evolved as I went along, going from an alien on the mysterious red planet to being the alter ego of Flash Mercury, a race car driver character Larson had created, who would play a part in Dragon's story later on, who changed it to him by calling out the name of the wizard Fonte. Hmm. Wow. Okay. A little Captain Marvel influence. A little bit, yeah. Uh, he continues. Uh, after that, we went we went to being the secret identity of William Johnson, changing into him in times of stress, much like a certain green Goliath from a major comic <laughs> book company. Uh, regarding the Finn, he says, visually, for the first few years, he ran around wearing a cape and cowl with his famed Finn attached to his forehead. So it was part of the cape and cowl, yeah. not necessarily a appendage of sorts. Um Dragon's first appearance was in Graphic Fantasy number one. It was June 1982. A self-published uh, two-issue series put out by Larson and a couple of his buddies. They called their outfit Ajax Comics Group. Cover price for the 72-page anthology jam was $2.25. Not bad. No, uh, Larson's father was a teacher and and owned an offset tabletop printer. Uh, he and his pa- this is how they produced their book here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and his pals went to a Washington State comic convention to try to sell their wares and uh, to hand out a few comps to some of the big shots. Eric says, one of the guys we gave a copy to was Mike Grell, and he looked at it like he'd been given a dog <laughs> turd. <laughs> there you go. Yep. <laughs> As for Dragon... Here he's mostly recognizable, same body type, same green skin. Uh, however, the fin isn't nearly as pronounced as it would become. It kind of looks like a like a like a cornrow mohawk. Kinda. Oh yeah, it's weird. a tight fin, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, this is a ver- in this version, uh, Paul Dragon was a retired superhero from the SOS. That's the Society of Superheroes. Uh, he called it quits when his wife, fellow SOSer, Smasher, was killed. Uh, these earliest Dragon stories would be re-released as Savage Dragon Archives 1 through 4. This is June 1998 through January 1999 through Image Comics. And uh, Savage Dragon Archives, not to be confused with the current run of phone book size collections that are being released with the same name. Wow, it does sound like it could get confusing real fast if you tried to uh, collect <laughs> these up. His second appearance would be in Megaton number 2, October 1985. He had a brief cameo there. Uh, then the third appearance in Megaton number 3, that was February 1986. This is the first full appearance as Dragon. He's, he's on the cover of the issue, too. Paul Dragon now leads the SOS, still married to Smasher and his daughter named Angel. He fights off another Larson character named Vanguard. They find out they're on the same side, and then they team up to take down some supervillains. So... Not a whole lot different than many other mainstream the, superhero comics. The mighty Marvel storytelling. Essentially, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, several of Larson's characters very nearly became Marvel's second incarnation of X-Factor when the original five X-Men were returned to the flagship books, but that didn't happen. Before Peter David was given the gig on X-Factor with issue number 71, where he put together the, the ramshackle team of Havoc, Polaris, Strong Guy, Multiple Man, Wolf's Bane, and Quicksilver... Larson, along with our old pal Fabian Nicieza, put together a pitch of their own. This version of X-Factor would still be led by Havoc and would feature Polaris in her super, super buff Malice incarnation. This would also feature the X-Men villain Pyro and Larson Creation's Super Patriot and Horridus. Uh, but to be fair, Super Patriot was actually supposed to be a take on the Crimson Commando first appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 215 but would use the exact design as Super Patriot would a year or two later. So, sort of. Uh, <laughs> sort of a combination. Also worth mentioning, and from Larson himself, the Super Patriot design was planned to be used for a terroristic villain in Amazing Spider-Man, but Marvel didn't like the idea of a terrorist wearing an American flag face mask. Seems that's not that's the only way they do terrorism nowadays. Mm-hmm. Now, into the book. Savage Dragon number one, Baptism of Fire. We open in a bank in Chicago, Illinois. The time is now. Officer Dragon is in mid-leap pursuing one gaudy-looking supervillain. Yeah, really. Uh, he seems to like skulls. You think You think skulls are his thing, Chris? I'm not he, sure. I think he might, he might dig skulls, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, the bad guy's name is 
Cutthroat. And we got to wonder if he took that wrong turn at Albuquerque on his way to Youngblood. Uh, Dragon smashes the geek's face with a left. Yeah, Cutthroat says, A monster! Cops a damn monster to get me! Uh, Cutthroat's partner... Uh, girlfriend, uh, main squeeze, whoever she is. Her name is Glowbug. She jumps onto Dragon's back. She says, Leave him alone, you freak! Leave my man alone! Dragon draws his right arm back, slamming the dame in the mush with a whack, which leads to Cutthroat firing back with a kick that goes, Chunt. <laughs> and you know, you gotta, we gotta give a minute to these sound effects. Like, they're, they're all drawn in this uh, particular style that I, I don't know what you would call it, maybe burn. Burn maybe something like this could be yeah. Uh, Burn Simonson Simonson reminds me of it's it's all this very stylized sound effects. Anyway, Cutthroat says, "You green bastard, you're meat freak." No, no, he's not. Uh, Dragon headbutts the goofball and hurls him across the room. Uh, Cutthroat monologues a bit before giving for asking before asking one final question. Give me one <clears throat> good reason why I should let you take me in. And Dragon, Dragon replies, speaking for the first time, he says, Because I say so. Good enough. So now Dragon and the geeks emerge from the bank. Dragon's lauded with applause. A fellow officer welcomes to the force and asks if he's been a rough day. Dragon replies with, I've had worse. We then shift to a flaming parking lot. The time is before. In the middle of the inferno lay a new dragon in the fetal position. This is actually where the archive edition begins. The bank robbery scene is moved to the end. Right? It, we just get, just briefly, the archive edition that you get in the trade is different than the yeah. first it's printing. It's a little reworked. Of the, you know, which, which they did to Youngblood also. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the, you know, these guys had to develop their storytelling, so the original issues necessarily aren't so uh, pat. Uh, anyway, we, and we'll be going kind of back and forth Showing some differences as we go through yeah. this Time passes and Dragon wakes up in a bed And there's an officer seated next to him Yeah, this is uh, Lieutenant Frank Dawling From the Chicago Police Department And he's got a few questions For our uh, new big green pal Frank says To begin with, who are you? I, I don't know Terrific You know where you came from? No uh, all these uh, dragon-centric questions yield similar answers, but then Frank says, Who is the President of the United States? George Bush. Which was true then and would again be true nine years later. Mm -hmm. So Frank is shocked. He says, <laughs> So who played Fred Mertz? William Frawley. When was the last time the Cubs won the World Series? 1945. Which actually was never true, but it was no. changed in some, it's, I think he messed up a little bit. Uh, it was changed in subsequent printings to when was the last time the Cubs were in the World Series, yes. which would have been true. But, you know, that's uh, maybe Eric Larson doesn't have the baseball knowledge to, to mind like some might. Could be. Uh, so it looks like we might just have ourselves a case of Swiss cheese brain rather than full-blown amnesia. A special amnesia of some kind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now we jump ahead a bit and join Frank Darling as his wife and his wife having dinner. In the background, the television news is reporting on the superhero Super Patriot. They're chatting about their green-skinned, big-finned mystery house guest when the news report turns tragic. Yes, the newscaster goes, Super Patriot's in critical condition. He was brought into the hospital today with both arms and legs crushed beyond repair and half his face missing. Doctor says if he lives, he'll never walk again. Now, in the archive edition here, it adds a page showing Dragon leaving the hospital. And this is where the nurse chat christens him as Dragon due to, you know, him having green skin and a giant fin. Uh, I would have called him Sunfish, but that's me. Uh, he tells Lieutenant Darling to call him Dragon until they can find out who he really is. Frank offers Dragon a place to stay in a loft above a warehouse. His cousin Fred runs by the docks. Yeah, back in the actual issue, uh, Dragon is chilling in that loft he'd been put up in. Frank approaches and has a favor to ask. He appeals to Dragon to help the police fight off this new breed of superpowered mutant criminal. He says, help us, Dragon. You're our only hope. And Dragon, he kind of hems and haws a bit and ultimately concludes, You're asking for too much, Frank. Please. Don't burden me with this. Well, ain't that a nice how do you do? I know, right? <laughs> Frank ain't pleased, and he heads home to complain about the green ingrate. I got him a job working for my cousin at the shipyard and a place to live. The loft above the warehouse where he works. Damn it, he owes me. 
Frank's wife tries to calm him down and to look at it from Dragon's point of view. What the hell am I supposed to do? I don't know. Pray? <laughs> we shift scenes to the shipyard. Dragon's going on about his business when he notices some goings on inside the warehouse. Inside, we meet a balding villain with some molecule man markings on his face. He makes a, uh, we think, racist remark at poor Fred Darling. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, it says, says something very rude. Uh, Dragon arrives and bashes the baddie's head into the wall. He's jumped by a skull-headed, long-haired, red and gold armored character that you gotta see to believe. The skull mm -hmm. guy says, Bad move, ugly! You're dust! Now, despite our our voice acting skills here, we got to mention that exclamation marks are used very sparingly it's during true. this yeah. issue. Yeah. It's almost jarring that these guys are like saying what they're saying with just periods at the end of the, at yeah. the end of the sentences. It's like it, it is. It's very pat. You know, very like you know, straightforward, almost monologuing everything. Mm -hmm. It kind of freak, freaks <laughs> me out a little. Dragon holds up a fist, while which the bad guy dives right into. Give it a rest. This skull-faced creep doesn't understand why Dragon opposed him. Clearly, he's a super freak just like him. He says, What the hell are you doing working for a living? You're strong enough to take whatever the hell you want. That's where the real cash is. And Dragon replies with, Thanks for the guidance, counseling pinhead. I, want, I do want one thing. Your butt in jail. Nice. Mm -hmm. After the police arrive, I guess the skull guy didn't put up too much of a fight after that. Uh, Fred Darling begins rummaging through the ruins of his office. He says, damn, 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 damn. What is it, Fred? What are you doing? Fred then lays into Dragon for destroying the business he'd built over the course of his lifetime in a matter of minutes. All they wanted was money. Now they want my life, and it's all your damn fault. Dragon tells him he'll protect him. Actually, he swears it. Just in time for the entire shipyard to explode. <laughs> so we're back to a naked dragon laying into the flames. Um, <laughs> we rejoin Frank Dolling, who's watching the news. He and we learn that yet another superhero has been taken out of commission. This is Mighty Man, and he's basically Captain Marvel. Yeah, the news says, Robert Bourbon was 64 years old. He regained consciousness in the hospital only briefly, but apparently lacked the strength to magically transform himself into the hero who is dubbed the world's mightiest man. He will be missed. Yes, and Frank's veg time is interrupted by a knock at the door. It's Dragon, and he comes with good news and, and bad news, which he delivers pretty casually. He, says, he starts out, The bad news is that your cousin's dead. Good news is I'm ready to take you up on that offer. You know, you really should always lead with the bad news because you want to, you know, you want to end on a high note like that. Yes. So Frank mourns for, for an appropriate amount of time for his late cousin, uh, which is about a millisecond, apparently. He Maybe, does, yeah. We don't even think he was paying attention to what yeah. <laughs> the first thing Savage Dragon said. Uh, in the archive edition, we do get a scene of Frank sitting on his bed talking to his wife about what just happened. But only re really seems to be upset that Dragon will now have to sleep on their couch. That's his big <laughs> problem with the, the whole thing. Uh, he says, Super Freaks tried to extort money from Fred. The dragon kicked their butt so, the, they, so they had Fred's warehouse blown sky high. He's dead, and we've got a greenhouse guest sleeping on our couch. Yeah, that's pretty cold-blooded. I know. I mean, why don't you just get a, why don't you buy him a bed if he's going to be there? Anyway, uh, <laughs> the archive edition also shows scenes of Dragon joining the police force, showing his stuff and honing his skills. We also meet his cop cast. It's weird reading both versions at once, you know. Uh, you know, this is something Chris has the archive. I only read the image comic, and there, you know, all this background stuff really would be useful in the uh, first issue been. of the comic. You know, it, things just sort of happen in the comic, although there is plenty of exposition to read if you want. Uh, this is around the point where the scene op that opens issue number one is placed in the collection. So that's yeah. So the bank robbery that comes bank robbery right is now. now yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it's so weird when you like reading the archive and then going to the actual issue. It feels like it's just a series of vignettes. It's so so jarring. Hmm. Uh, but the uh, the next scene in the issue proper features a young female officer who the collected edition readers will now know as Alex Wilde, ducking from gunfire behind her squad car. She's yelling for backup, but doesn't appear to be using her radio. I do it all the time, Chris. I just yell backup, and someone but yeah, you know, just go. Back up! You know, eventually someone will hear that and do something. Maybe. Somebody's bound to wander by. Uh, lucky for her, the dragon just happened to be in the neighborhood. As she explains the current hostage situation going down, uh, he digs through the trunk of the car and procures, oh boy, a pair of very large guns and an ammo belt. 
Uh, he's wearing reflective shades and sort of resembles Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator, if the Terminator had green skin and a fin on his head, that is. Uh, he's also got a police badge hooked to his belt, so he's already on the force at this point. However, if you were reading the trade, you'd already know that. Uh, Dragon, launch, yes, Dragon launches into battle somehow through the floor of the hostage hideaway. About 75 million rounds of ammunition are fired between everyone involved. A dragon actually takes a bullet to the eye. Maybe he can get his cybernetics and go full cable now. Maybe. Uh, dragon finds the, uh, I don't know, main hostage holder, the uh, the king of the kidnappers, the cardinal of captains, uh, the ayatollah of abductions, the sultan of snatches. Yeah, him, that guy. <laughs> uh, he's holding a gun to the girl's head. And, he, and uh, Dragon goes, ready to give up? And the guy says, drop it, freak, or I'll kill the girl. Wrong answer. Dragon loads the, the baddie's arm up with bullets with a thuck, thuck, thuck. And uh, the captor pleads for his life. A strange costume man enters through the window. Hold it right there, pajama man. Can the theatrics, friend, we're fighting the same battle. By the way, this guy is Star, and he'll show up again later. In the archive, we do get a couple of pages of Dragon seen to the hostage. She faints in his arms, and he carries her outside. Yeah, back in the uh, the actual issue, we wrap up by seeing a group of super freaks, including Hell Razor, Basher, Overlord, and Mako. Mako is the shark one, uh, watching the televised account of Dragon's deed. Yeah, Hell Razor says, "Of course, you realize this means war, boss." Do as you please, Hellraiser. His feeble attempts to restore order of this are little concern to me. More fun! So, uh, and it was. That and the fun would continue for <laughs> many, 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 many issues. Oh, isn't that right? Right up to, to today, the fun continues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Savage Dragon is one of the longest. I, is it the longest running by one creator? It has to be. It, uh, well, it, it's, the longest ra- ra- it's the longest running full color. By okay. one creator. All right. Yeah. Uh, okay, because Sims would be the other one, mm-hmm. right? or ElfQuest even yes. could be in there. Sim. You're right. So uh, yeah, so this is uh, this was pretty good. I got to say, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's for all these image guys, and I've been told that we are doing them in ascending order, which <laughs> which was not planned, but I'm I'm glad it is going that way. But I definitely do like this one the best out of the three that we've read so far. I'm a little familiar with Eric Larson already uh, because of his Doom Patrol work. You know, I, I've read that. Plenty of times, and and I I like the way that's drawn. So I like the way this was drawn. Uh, I didn't have the archive edition though, so it was a little bit, uh, you know, interesting. You know what I mean? Like, a, definitely a lot of questions left for me in the end of what what the some of the stuff that happened. That looks sounds like the archive edition plugs in, but at the same time, it had a classic uh, comic book storytelling sensibility about it. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell that uh, Larson is definitely a student of, uh, you know, like uh, the the Marvel method and Kirby, and mm. it's it, a lot of his work feels like it's homaging, you know, Kirby and uh, and just the Silver Age Marvel. So it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. And now you got this off the rack, right? Yes, I did. That's yes, right. I did. You were there. You were there the day of. Purchased it right mm-hmm. there. So uh, you've been following along, and you still collect it to this day. I do, I do. Uh, been through some not so pleasant times, but yes, I've uh, <laughs> I've stuck around for the most part. Yeah, I mean, you know, and Eric Larson, he's on social media, which we'll talk more about that later. But uh, <laughs> specific to this, though, he also talks about his creative process and you know the ups and downs of doing something like this. You know, it, sure. it's it's become, I think, more of a matter of honor. Now that he's just going to do Savage Dragon until his arms fall off. Pretty much. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about how that's not always the easiest gig to have, but he sticks by it and it's got its uh, hardcore fans. And I don't really see it going anywhere now. Plus, he is one of the owners of Image. So there's some some happenings in there, I'm sure, that, sure. that uh, help him out. But anyway, let's uh, wrap up a little bit about Savage Dragon. Now, uh, this comic does contain mature themes, sex, cursing, and politics, and you will go on, because this is yes. <laughs> yes, uh, now, Savage Dragon is its actually the book that made me change my customer profile at DCBS. <laughs> it's a discount comic book services. Uh, I had to check off the adult and mature content disclaimer before finishing my order to get, the, to get this on my list. Wow, did you have to show uh, an ID? <laughs> I had to take a picture. <laughs> I had to fly to Indiana to do it. Yeah, uh, now, now, this uh, book, it goes without saying, can be very adult at times. Uh, 
lots of sex, especially lately. Uh, there was actually a scene uh, within the past couple of years where the characters are basically just having sex throughout it, with uh, new participants joining in throughout. It's the whole issue. Wow. Uh, and it's not unusual for colorful language to appear. Nothing, you know, nothing X-rated, but uh, you know, mature language. Yeah, you'll get you'll uh, get your S S bombs yeah. or whatever. I gotta say, you know, I know this comic somewhat as a booby comic book, and I was a little I also was, true. A little disappointed <laughs> that there were no boobies in the first issue, but that's <laughs> you, got, you can't lead off with no. <laughs> you can't you can't risk going behind the uh, the curtain at the uh, comic shop. Uh, now, this is a part I I've got a very I've got like a zero tolerance policy in politics in my books. Uh, so for some of these some of these Savage Dragon books, I just collect them because I'm an idiot and I just bag them and put them away mm. because uh, I I don't care what side you're rooting for, what side you're rooting against, who you're resisting, who you're appealing. I don't care. Uh, I don't want to hear it. Um, unfortunately. Uh, Larson, unfortunately, he often interjects his political leanings into his work, which it's his right. Mm -hmm. It's his work. It's very heavy handed. <laughs> it paints anyone who thinks a smidge different from him as a, a lunatic, uh, as a maybe a hate monger. I don't know. It's just it's very it's very pointed. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel it often gets in the way of the storytelling. And even at times, as we're about to find out in the coming months, it, it can usurp the story. Uh, the, the next couple of months, we are in the Trump era, of course. Uh -huh. And uh, he does not like that. So Dragon, or this Malcolm Dragon, is uh, going to uh, move to Canada. So is Trump topical. the president in Savage Dragon too? Uh huh. Oh wow, yep. it's, it's it's not like it's not like lump. No, or no, because he's no, because uh, Dragon was uh, Savage Dragon was one of the first, if not the first, to do an Obama cover. Oh wow. Where uh, Savage Dragon actually uh, he. Uh, he uh, he backs him basically. Yeah, it's him. It's the two of them standing on the cover, and he endorses Obama's presidency. Well, which you know, it's his right, but it's it does. I feel like it does alienate part of the audience, and it does take away from the story. But 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 for nothing else though, this is 100% Eric Larson. You know what it's I mean? All him. He he it's lives all... and dies by everything here. This isn't like a stance this by Marvel or DC or yeah. Image. Yeah, so. Yeah, no, it's, it's, like, right. it's like you say, yeah, this is this is what he wants to do. He is living his perfect life. So, uh, and we will find out that he is not uh, af afraid to state his opinions in general. So. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> but first, we'll talk a little bit about the secret origin of Savage Dragon. It was revealed in the Image Comics hardcover, which was initially supposed to serve as a 10th anniversary book. However, it got delayed. <laughs> From 2002 to November 30th, 2005. Whoops, so it was, it was the uh, 12th, 12th anniversary, right? Something like that. Sure. 12th, um, 13th, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in it, we learned that the dragon was at one time an evil tyrant known as Emperor Kerr, K-U-R-R. Uh, his people were a peaceful lot, which vexed him because he was not a peaceful guy. And so he chose to visit Earth, a place where he initially planned to, you know, slaughter every human. Was the, yeah. the usual alien either the, the alien thing is we're going to give you technology or kill everyone one or the <laughs> other. Uh, upon finding out, a pair of alien scientists screwed with his brain, erased his memory, and filled his head with a week's worth of Earth and American satellite television. Kerr was sent to Earth, and as the fellow, we meet this issue, and his people went elsewhere in search of peace. You got to figure at least one episode of I Love Lucy was on that satellite. Because he knew about Fred Merck, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he did. Now, uh, Savage Dragon has a has a bunch of uh, well deserved accolades here. We have a. Uh, it is the. It's like we had mentioned earlier. It's currently the longest running full color comic book that has featured a single writer slash artist of all time. Dave Sims got him beat overall, however. Uh, Cerebus was published in uh, black and white, so it's, you know, <laughs> there isn't a denim there. Uh, now, at the rate Larson's going, Sims' record uh, overall will likely be broken within the next seven to eight years. Um, now, remember, uh, Larson even wrote a second version of Savage Dragon number 13, <laughs> uh, which was part of Image X Month, which is, you know, the Founders Swap Books Month gimmick. Uh, so he'd have an uninterrupted run. Uh, we mentioned that a few times already. Yep. Uh, he recalls, and I've got to admit, the thought of not having, not being in the driver's seat for an issue is driving me nuts. Prior to the image meeting where we all decided to swap books, I had intended to do at least 100 consecutive issues of the Savage Dragon. I guess I'll have to draw it until issue 113 now. Wow. <laughs> It wasn't to be, though, because within a year of the event, Larson created his own number 13 to fit into continuity. Uh, number 13, the Jim Lee version, has a cover date of October 94, 
while the Larson one uh, came about eight months later, June 1995. Yeah, but being late is never a problem at Image. But you know, it, it's such a, it's such a, you know, you could tell it was just eating away at him. You know, he just couldn't let yeah, it he stand. Lost sleep. It yeah. was bothering him. He had to get his his in there. So uh, it's pretty hilarious. And especially, like I say, if you follow Eric Larson. Uh, social media, then you know they, that is the kind of guy he is. He's very, pr- is very principled yeah. about his stuff. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk about the animated series. It actually, Savage Dragon had a two season, 26 episode animated series. It aired on the USA Network as part of their Cartoon Express block of programming and ran f- from September 21, 1994 to December 21, 1995. Episode 21 was part of a crossover with other Cartoon Express shows, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Defenders of the Realm, and Wing Commander Academy. Mm. Uh, We have no idea how this could have worked, but I am intrigued. We are intrigued to find out and, and see what that was about. Uh, did you did you watch this cartoon as a lad? You would have been a little I'm bit. Sure, I did. You would have I'm, been like thirteen ish, right? Something like that. I'd have been fourteen. Yeah, 14. so I, I'm pretty sure I I at least had it on in the background. I'm you sure. might you might have put it on, but made snarky comments about you know it being stupid for kids or something. <laughs> uh, the dragon was voiced by Jim Cummings, who also provided voices for Darkwing Duck, Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, and the Tasmanian Devil. Quite the pedigree. Yeah. Uh, Now, Dragon merchandise. In 1995, Playmates Toys released several Savage Dragon character action figures for their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle line. We're going to talk about the turtles a little bit later, too. Uh, In 1996, McFarlane Toys would do the same under their Spawn Ultra Action Figure line. Uh, A few years later, in 2002, McFarlane Toys would release a hyper-detailed and... Ridiculously top-heavy Savage Dragon <laughs> Deluxe figure as part of the Image 10th anniversary celebration. Uh, it's hard to stand this sucker up. Uh, in 2007, Marvel Toys, yeah, Marvel Toys, released a line called Legendary Comic Book Heroes, part of their you know Legends series. And this uh, featured characters like Witchblade, Man, Mad Men, Mad Man, oi, what's wrong with me? Uh, Judge Dredd and two flavors of Savage Dragon, one with a tank top and one without. Uh, your dragon chest hair mileage may vary. Uh, if you were to buy all the figures of the line, you could assemble a giant pit action figure. Huh. Uh, over the years, several statues and busts were re-released. Uh, dragon foe Mr. Glum would receive a plushie. Uh, in 1995, Dragon was inserted into the collectible card game Overpower, which was uh, started as a Marvel project, s- slowly got some DC into it, and then went to uh, Image. Um, and since it was the 90s, Savage Dragon even got his own Pogs. He had to. He had to have them. There was no no mm-hmm. way around it. You had to have no. Pogs at a certain point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty crazy. You really could get a lot of Savage Dragon toys to play with. Now let's wrap up on the creator, Eric Larson, for the episode. He would continue writing, penciling, and inking Savage Dragon until... Today, right now, he's still doing it. As of this recording, Savage Dragon is up to issue 224, and there's no signs or plans of stopping. Currently, the story is focused on Malcolm Dragon, the Dragon's son. Not sure if we mentioned this yet, and we didn't. Uh, Savage Dragon occurs in real time, so people actually age and stuff, (laughs) which is pretty impressive, too, I think. Worth mentioning that Eric also created Freak Force, which was a team of characters who first appeared in, in and spun out from Savage Dragon number 4, September 1992. The series would run for a somewhat respectable 18 issues from December 1993 to July 1995, and was co-written by Keith Giffen with art from Vic Bridges. The most interesting part of this bit, at least for us, is that this was a team comprised primarily of characters Larson created as a child. I can't imagine that's like a dream come true. I mean, really, although if, if you know, if it was me, it would have been like Robot Dracula and, uh, <laughs> you know, some derivative of Godzilla, you know, it would have been very, you know, would have been Lord Zilla or something. But that that's pretty incredible. <laughs> like, like I would say, living his best life right here. Absolutely. Uh, the series also featured in issue number 11, November 1994, the first appearance of Johnny Redbeard, who sort of reminds us of someone. Wonder if we'll get to him today. Uh, <laughs> now he's done a ton of work throughout the years, and we'll just look at a few of the uh, the ones that stood out to us here. Uh, in 1995, when Mirage Studios decided to stop publishing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Larson was instrumental in bringing the property to Image Comics for a 23 issue run that he also drew. Wow. 
series got kind of dark. Uh, in it, Donatello becomes a cyborg. <laughs> Raphael has his face destroyed. Um, the series also, uh, you know, it was an image comic at the time, so it did shoehorn a bunch of image character cameos into the mix. Uh, he also provided inks for Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck Number One. This is November 1996, and this is a uh, you know famous for the uh, the bit where Steve Gerber reveals that he uh, sort of kind of took back, stole, reappropriated right. Howard the Duck or Leonard the Duck. Or yeah, it's all implied. It's all allegorical, but yeah, it's this is all Marvel part of that part of that Howard the Duck debacle. Uh, Larson returned to work for higher gigs around the turn of the century, putting in writing stints at Marvel, including finally getting to produce a series featuring one of his favorites, Nova, Volume 3, 1 through 7, made through November 1999. He did the writing and art on that. So finally got to do it. Uh, also did Wolverine 133 to 149. This was January 1999 to April 2000 cover date. For a bit of this run, Larson was actually writing a scroll in the guise of Wolverine. Upon reread, it's quite well done. You would never notice there was n- that there was no internal monologue or narrative captions during these issues. During the initial read, later on, it becomes more obvious, I guess. Yes, it's very subtly done. It's uh, almost too subtle for comic books. Interesting. Uh, he did a fill-in on Hulk. This is adjectiveless Hulk number eight. It's actually not a fill-in, but it was meant to be him. Mm. Uh, this is uh, November 1999, and it featured a big fight with Wolverine. And if we're not mistaken, this might actually be the last Wolverine fight before he has his uh, adamantium rebonded to his skeleton. When he's just bone, when he's all bone claws back yeah, then. He's, yeah, he's all bone. Uh, now. This is the first issue after a fellow by the name of John Byrne left the title, and we we might chat a little bit more about it. Yeah, we seem to be circling around to that, so yeah. (laughs) But uh, he also did Defenders Volume 2, number 1 through 12, March 2001 to February 2002. He was a co-writer, penciler with Kurt Busiek. Uh, This title would morph into The Order and run six issues more, but Larson wasn't a part of that. No. Uh, in 2004, February 2004, Lawson would take over the position of publisher of Image Comics from uh, Jim Valentino, and that's a position that he would hold until July 2008 when he stepped down. Uh, executive director for Image, Eric Stevenson, took over for him. So with all this stuff, when did he find time to write Devil in the White City, Chris? That's uh, a different dude. Really? Are you sure? Did he write, What about <laughs> Isaac's story? Did he write that one? I think that's that's that other dude, yeah. Beasts in the Garden of Good and Eat. No, you didn't write that? I don't think that was him, yeah. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been kind of alluding to for the past (laughs) few minutes. uh, I was almost going to say the soft-spoken. But no, it's the, it's the outspoken <laughs> Mr. Larson. He would never consider this fellow to be soft-spoken or to have held himself back. Uh, there isn't much to say about Larson as there is about, you know, in, in this regard, as there is to say about John Byrne or somebody who's basically a never-ending stream of unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable quotes about everything, you know, in existence. Uh, Eric has been known to run his mouth when he's got a problem with something. Uh, a very, very famous one would have been uh, back in the kind of well, semi-long ago. Uh, it was when Mike W. Barr, a writer who was written for just about every big-name character in comics, made some comments in a letter to DC's Shop Talk, where he discussed inequity in pay and the, in the comics industry, namely lamenting the fact that artists were making all the royalty dough. Uh, Larson wrote a letter to Comics Buyer's Guide in response, however, did not sign it, instead marking it Name Withheld. To give you a taste of what we're in for, it opened with this statement, Mike, you ignorant slut, yep. which is taken from Saturday Night Live, but still not a nice thing to say. Uh, he mentions that up until recently, writers and artists did receive equal royalties. He also brings up the point that many writers have the capacity to write more than one book a month, possibly while even editing even more. Uh, he, he said, if I drew a comic book in the time it takes a real writer like Mike Barr to write it, I'd be a pretty sorry looking comic book to look at. He also said the fact that most artists spend 12, 10 to 12 hours a day, plus most weekends, every single month to produce what a writer who labors over his work can produce in a week shows where the real inequality lies. Eric suggests Mike might have lashed out because, in his words, they, the, the writers, they are becoming obsolete in comparison to writer-artists or, in Larson's phrasing, phrasing artist-writers. He would go on to suggest that writers are more than happy to rest on their laurels, Rehash stories, reuse characters and concepts, sending out the same thing for the past 15 years. We'd almost believe this was written today, until we read the following list Larson included. Who knows how many silver surfers, demons, new gods, deathlocks, ambush bugs, cables, shatter stars, 
Ferals, Electras, Mr. A's, Ronins, Shrapnels, Terminuses, Alpha Flights, and many others aren't being created because artists are being overshadowed by lazy writers. So, yeah, this was, you know, definitely written in the early 1990s. Although, <laughs> yes. the ambush bug, I gotta say, that's kind of a weird nod, but okay. Isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, now, he cites a bit where our boss suggested that writers get... This is kind of weird. Some of the original art back to sell on the secondary market, wow. which... Uh, okay. I, I, I don't think I agree with Mr. Barr there. <laughs> no, I don't. Absolutely not. Uh, Larson questions why writers don't just sell their scripts at conventions. While it wouldn't be as lucrative by the piece, they could print them out to fill the need. So whenever they need one, they print it. Yeah. Uh, unlike an artist. Which they do today, yeah. They, they, sure, people, sure. I don't know how well they do, but I do see guys selling their uh, scripts and stuff. Yeah, signed scripts. That's not a bad uh, collectible to have if you're a fan of a writer. Yep. Um, now, this is, of course, an endless supply, as many times as you can hit the print button, unlike an artist who has a very limited supply of pages to sell on that secondary market. Uh, he states that artists will be valued higher because, quote, editors know that a well-drawn book with so-so writing will always sell better than a well-written book with so-so art, which was definitely true back then, and it's probably still true today. I think so. I, I don't know. I haven't done the math, Chris, but yeah, I think, I think you're still right, but I would say it's less true. I'm sure uh, it's writers true, definitely sure. run the run the sh the show today. Yeah, and and writers do have more loyal fans today, I think, than they might have in the early '90s. Yeah. Um, he closes out with, "When a kid comes up to me at a show and wants to break in as a writer, I always give them the same advice: learn to draw or get a job as an editor." Boom! Wow, <laughs> that's a cold diss. Uh, but it's yeah. like, who do you agree with there? I mean, that's well, you know. I Eric makes, I, I, I agree with most of his makes points. Cogent points. The yeah. only problem is, you know, and I remember this was right, obviously right in the beginning of the time of the superstar writer-artist or artist-writer and the idea mm -hmm. that, you know, art, writers weren't needed anymore because artists could do all these great, you know, exciting things. But as we came to find out, a lot of these artists can't write very well. And it, and yeah. it is two disciplines, you know, to concentrate on one over the other, I think, is important for some. Sure. Some can pull it off. And frankly, Eric Larson did a good job here. I mean, it's not like Absolutely. it can't be done, although you kind of had to pull back on the complexity of the story, I think, to make it happen. You know what I mean? You don't have the time to really dig in. But anyway, that's a conjecture on my part. And this wasn't the only time that Eric Larson would be outspoken about the industry. Oh, not by a long shot, folks. Mm -hmm. In discussing a letter written to Wizard Magazine, issue number 117, where a fan writes in to dis disagree with a comment Larson had made in issue number 112 of the very same magazine, uh, that his comment was about how Marvel and DC should never resort to killing longtime characters. He laments the fact that superhero fans don't grow up and leave the hobby. He cites uh, this, the current generation never being able to experience the Superman, Clark Kent, Lois Lane love triangle, and the short-term gains of cheapening superhero life by repeatedly killing them. Eric Larson stated, once you've once you caught on that Archie will never get married to either Betty or Veronica, you moved on. And that's exactly how it should be with superhero comics from Marvel and DC. Further, look at the heroes that have been that have been created at Marvel and DC in the last 20 years. Not an icon in the bunch. Not even DC Milestone's icon became an icon. <laughs> Cable, Deadpool, and Impulse are about the extent of it, hardly enough to carry a company. Well, things have changed. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's not, that way, but okay. not by much. Now, he would write another piece in Wizard 124. I think this was for their Magic Words section here. Uh, and he writes about how little there is in comics for younger fans. He says, Never before has there been so little for a younger reader. Nearly every book is part of a larger picture. Virtually nothing is self-contained. Which is still going on today. Yeah, well, I, I would say it's way worse, even. But okay. <laughs> it's way worse. He continues to say, "Why are we so dead set against making comic books accessible to all ages? Why are we focusing on an audience that is the least likely to start reading?" Also true. And uh, he closes out with the simple question: Why are there no superhero comics for my children to read? And uh, yeah, I'm in total agreement with that. I think people would, would absolutely people would point to. You know, there there are a series of comic books, you know, graphic novels or whatever you want to call them, uh, comic, you know, bound things in the bookstore for young children. Uh, and, you know, there's stuff like Teen Titans Go and Scooby-Doo, I guess. But uh, I got to figure the kids know the difference. I know I would. 
<laughs> but, but, but I mean the sad I mean the sad thing is you know maybe I wouldn't give a you know super Superman comic from 1983 to a four-year-old either just because I think that would be confusing to them they'd be like sure. I can't read most of these words but I wouldn't what's give... a post-crisis what's a post-crisis <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> uh but I wouldn't give a Superman comic today to to a 13 year old kid without without talking oh. to his mother you know I'd be like is this okay for yeah. them and uh that's too bad it really shouldn't be that closed off you know it's funny because i i'd actually uh i had a niece visit um probably about 10 years ago and uh, she was going through my comics and she found a supergirl comic she wanted and and, and i had a had a beautiful cover and i was like oh sure and then i'm like well let me like look through that uh and i opened it up and uh nope (laughs) there's no way there's no way i could have given it to her it's overly violent or you know sexualized or something yeah it's like it's like part of it's a uh part of it was a slumber party and girls were in their underwear and they were drawing circles over each other's imperfections and it's like like, what the hell is this yeah it's uh it's really too bad you know it's a tough it's a tough line to walk to make a comic or make anything that can be enjoyed equally in equal parts by very young and older people sure but it can be done i watched the lego movie i had a ball so Take take a cue from that. Anyway, like back back to Eric Larson. Uh, in 2005, Larson laid out a challenge in comic book resources in which he took swipes at comic creators who were only working on corporately owned characters rather than blazing their own trail. He refers to them as, let's say for the for this show they were vaginas, yeah. who were resting on their uh, posteriors and uh, <laughs> challenges them to show him what they've got. Peter David, our friend, has a response to this piece in his But I Digress column in Comics Buyer's Guide, which opens with, Eric, you ignorant slut. Uh, Uh, Nice callback. Sure. Uh, He suggests that much of Larson's ire comes from a point of jealousy. He says, could it be? Jealousy? Well, let's check his recent track record. A widely decried and short-lived run on Aquaman that seemed to exist primarily to tear down my work on the book, all of which outsold his, and an attempt to get assigned to the Hulk with a take that Marvel didn't want to touch with a uh, 10-meter cattle prod. Perhaps he's the fox dismissing those grapes as just too sour. Uh, he also suggests that Larson may be strumming up interest in getting some new blood into Image, which he doesn't you know, begrudge him. He doesn't hold that against him but doesn't appreciate his tone. He says, why does it have to be done on the level of a mindless jock? He continues, I think if people are happy writing only Spider-Man or Superman or Batman or whatever, God bless them. There are so many people in this country who are labeling it, laboring at jobs they despise. Where the hell does anyone get off bitch-slapping people who are living out their dreams, the dreams of writing the characters they grew up with? It's very true. Now, we mentioned John Byrne a couple of times earlier, and it should come as no surprise that folks outspoken as Byrne and Larson in the same field, they're eventually going to cross paths. And turns out these two got along as well as mongooses and uh, whatever critter likes to eat mongooses. I think the other one maybe mongoose and a snake. Well, anyway. Maybe. Uh, in a thread about called The Growing Roses and Meeting Deadlines on the John Byrne Forum, that's at John Byrne Robotics, right? Burn uh, Robotics. Burn yeah. Robotics, right, uh, Dated June 4th, 2009 at 3.08 p.m., Burn states, Allow me to beat a dead horse for a moment or two. As noted elsewhere many times, somehow being late has become associated in the minds of some, presumably, feeble-witted fans with being good. These books are late because the creative teams involved are growing roses, to use Todd McFarlane's phrase, while books that are not late are, again in the toddler's words, crapped out on a monthly basis. You'd be shocked, shocked to learn that most of the burn forums were quick to agree with their man. Mm-hmm. Wow. And the Todd quote didn't say crapped, but uh, we figured that we would work fine. It's yeah. same thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, Eric Lawson would hop into the thread, uh, maybe exercising some poor judgment, but <laughs> he hopped in at 4.53 p.m. that same day. He says... You put an awful lot of stock into a tossed-off comment made by a guy trying to excuse a few of his pals who are struggling to launch a new universe with no game plan. Uh, He even cites that McFarlane was probably the one image founder whose book was always released uh, monthly, Mm -hmm. or at least initially. Uh, He claims that Todd would never suggest the works of Kirby or whoever were being referred to as, you know, being crapped out. Uh, He would continue... Reality check, not every word out of any everybody's mouth stands up to scrutiny. 
Sometimes people say stuff without thinking through all the possible ramifications and interpretations and misinterpretations. The idea that Todd's wisecrack was the f- philosophy of a generation is ludicrous. You know, I'm not sure if Eric was excusing Todd McFarlane or himself with that phrase. Frankly, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe both. Por qué la nas dos, or whatever it is. Uh, now it would take seven full minutes for the forum to begin picking him apart. Oh yes, that if you ever been over to that forum, you know that uh, you know you do not you do not besmirch the great John. You Burr. toe the line. You will. You know, eat Especially anyway. on a on a day that he he starts a he starts a just a stream of consciousness discussion with himself yeah. about growing roses. He started the forum thread. I know, yeah, and, out of uh, nowhere. But but of course, uh, anyway, who knows? <laughs> if, you, if you want me to tell you his motivations for anything, then we'll, I don't know what we're going to go with this because I have yeah. no idea why John Byrne has done anything he's done in the last ten years. <laughs> But uh, anyway, over at the forum, on the 56 pages of this thread, the discussion would shift to many topics, including Todd McFarlane versus Neil Gaiman, but that's something for another time, folks, that we have uh, working behind the scenes. Uh, Burn attempt to uh, burn (laughs) image with his observation from June 10th, 2009 at 10.31 a.m. He says image showed people at the time that they could work at Marvel, make a ton of money, find another company to bankroll them and take all the risks until they were sure they were going to make it on their own, and then unceremoniously dump them, that other company, all the while knowing that for most of the of the seven little bleeps McFarlane's term, there was absolutely no risk since Marvel would have welcomed them back with open arms. Larson disagrees. <laughs> At 5.51 p.m. that same day, bankroll my butt. We were, never pay- we were paid nothing up front by Malibu. They took zero risks. They took on the most popular creators in the industry, took a flat fee and percentage off every book they produced, and paid us after they had collected money from the distributors and paid the printing bill. Since they paid the printer after they were paid by the distributors, at no point were they out of pocket much of anything. We helped turn those guys into our competition and into millionaires. He continues, page rates shot through the roof after we left. Creators benefited a great deal from Image Comics at almost every company, and creator-owned deals have improved dramatically since we opened our doors. Which is true, but then Hard to uh, argue. Yep. That, that wouldn't be the end of it, of course. Think, <laughs> things would get personal at 9.48 p.m. that very day. Byrne would offer a more accurate picture might be gotten at, if at some point to these many years, low these many years ago, someone asked himself, what if the abomination was a good guy? He's referring to, of course, uh, the, the, char- the character we've been discussing here today, Savage Dragon. Uh, at 11.38 p.m., Larson's retort came. It's a good thing you threw that mite in there because that is the stupidest, most ill-informed and inaccurate piece of guesswork I've ever read in my life in regards to the genesis of the Savage Dragon. He compares Dragon most to Batman, uh, which I don't know if I agree with that, but okay. He goes on to defend himself, which is probably unwise in this forum, but understandable. And he says, uh, I created the Dragon in fourth grade in 1972, about a year before I started buying comics. We had my dad's comics around, but he didn't buy the Hulk. Yeah, he had mostly DC comics, and uh, and he did mention some Batman was there. It's it's so crazy how he feels he needs to defend himself against these folks. Always, it's yeah. Well, that's, mind blowing. That's where we. That's why we get these great uh, incidences that we're talking yes. about. <laughs> now, the following day, they find some common ground. Uh, okay, okay, no, they don't. Uh, this is 4.25 a.m. on June 11th. And I don't know if these things are, uh, <laughs> I don't know if these are on burn time or on whatever time I'm on I mean, when I'm reading the thread. They so got to be on burn time, Chris. You it's know, gotta that, be that's funny the only because... time that it can be. <laughs> Could you imagine burn at the computer at 4.25 a.m.? <laughs> oh, sure. I'm, even, if, even if it's not, though, we're looking at all this unfold over like a 24-hour period, you yep. know, so these people are... are at the computer fuming or thinking about this during the day. Just steaming, yeah. Yeah. Now Burton writes, Do you have any idea how many people thought Name Withheld was me? I wrote so many letters to CBG, I practically had a weekly column. And in none of those letters was I the least bit shy of sharing my opinions, much like this forum. Yet that cowardly piece of crap appeared. And multiple shame on Don and Maggie Thompson for printing it. And just and just about everyone assumed I had written it. 
the thread continued until Byrne locked it on June 28th, 2009 at 10.15 a.m., <laughs> by which point Larson had been long, long gone. Yeah, I guess he said what he had to say and uh, left, but there would be a round two for our narrative purposes, at least. It's not really a... There's probably several <laughs> rounds in between. I, I mean, if we if we really dug into every word they've typed, I'm sure there's lots of here all day. snipes yeah. and stuff. I've, I've definitely seen him make little comments here and there. Uh, but anyway, on Eric Larson's Facebook page, he has a photo album named Playing God. In it, he fixes the work of his fellow artists. On February 13th, 2013, he decided to fix a burn piece featuring The Thing. He claims that Byrne's work was loaded up with, uh, too loaded up with tangents, pointing to a lamppost and line in a building in particular. His fixed version removes both and cleans the thing's craggy hide. At 8.22 a.m., he says, tangents removed and the thing is given a bath. As you might imagine, Chris, this went over sw- swimmingly at the house of Byrne. Yes, in a thread title, uh, in a thread called, um, with a question mark, and then in uh, parentheses, now with free art lessons from Eric Larson. Wow. And before we go on, I think starting anything with, um, is, is like about the douchiest thing you can do. So that, or please remember, or, you know, oh, uh, yeah. these, these are bad, or you should be angry at, whenever you see that, you don't want to read what follows. No, not at all. Um, so this, uh, this thread, March 12th, 2013 at 10.35 a.m., Nearly a whole month later, <laughs> the pieces the pieces are finally shared. Uh, bone, b- bone, burn. Quoted Larson's <laughs> tangent removed, and added, "I do not think that word means what you think it means, which is another one of those super douchey things to say." Mm-hmm. Uh, now the peanut gallery did their thing, as you might imagine. Of course. Burn adds, the pages were drawn for color, and judging them as if they were intended to be viewed in black and white is, at best, disingenuous, and at worst, simply dishonest. The fact that Larson's assessment of the pages is wrong is a minor point in this light. Uh, the remainder of this 20-page thread <laughs> oh God. was littered with edited famous works of art, like so, like like the Mona Lisa with uh, with a mustache, you okay. know, silly stuff, just to show how silly Larson's corrections were. Uh, it closed March 24th with a member seriously suggesting Larson is in the midst of a breakdown. Hmm. Like he was saying he's actually worried for him. It's kind of one of those virtue signaling things where it's like, I'm really worried about him. He, he might be a... He might be on uh, on on a breakdown here. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Definitely seemed to be truly uh, caring for the guy as they yeah uh, right you know, <laughs> bend over for Mr. Byrne. Anyway, let's do one more. Let's do one more of these wonderful uh, back and forths. Uh, this time with added Lee Field man, as per Chris's uh, story, <laughs> on February twenty fifth, twenty fifteen. Twitter user at John Byrne says quoted some words from the man himself about characters being on model. The final tweet and the end of Mr. Burns' thought was, of course, a slight against the Image Boys. The quote said, Later we began to see the singer becoming ever more important than the song until the proto-Image Boys arrived, and then being on model became something to deliberately shun. Larson replied with, It's amazing how 25 years later this guy still holds a grudge. And the audience moved on because it couldn't hold their attention. And, and also... Didn't he draw a Superman off model with that lump of hair on his head and Clark's new look? And uh, he wrote, it's awfully hypocritical to damn the image guys for drawing off model when he did the same. Holding a grudge. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Enter Rob Liefeld. He says, image founders did not make John lose all his mojo and draw like crap. His deal with the devil expired on its own. Which Larson replied with, Ouch. <laughs> the pair would continue throughout the day, dogging on Burns' style, accuse him of aping Todd McFarlane's panel layout, and further state that all of Burns' current characters appear to be psychotic from exposure to, to Joker gas. Which, if you see some of these smiles on them, it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. But I think that's as far as we're going to go. In I that think one. that's that's enough, you know. And you know, we you can you can keep going and picking it apart. And uh, I think the most important thing to take from all this is what Eric Larson said originally in the John Byrne forum: not to take one person's comments as you know gospel necessarily. Sure. Someone might feel one one way one day and another way the next day, and 
There's no reason to fight on the internet, although if you do, please do it for our entertainment. <laughs> uh, if you've got any thoughts about anything we've talked about, any of these uh, topics being discussed by Eric Larson or about Savage Dragon or Image Comics or anything, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. On Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And you can find our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, where we review some comic books over there, including the entire Young Animal line. Mm-hmm. And uh, daily writings at Chris's personal blog on at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarth.com. Which I tell you every week, you got to go back and check every day. The guy is just cranking them out and uh you know really really pulling some wild bronze age silver age stuff out man i've been having a ball over there uh just really getting into the the wackiness but uh i think that's all we got from this week chris you got anything else for him I, I just want to uh, clarify that I uh, that I think we both are big fans of Eric Larson, so anything we might have said that was disparaging oh, yeah. is uh, purely for entertainment purposes here. Uh, I still do buy Savage Dragon every single month. I still buy the archive editions every time they're released. So I've got uh, I've got like the entire thing three ways now. So uh, it's uh, one of my favorites. Uh, Despite some of the politics, it's <laughs> I enjoy it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you for for my part with Eric Larson, whose art I do like a lot. I've heard a lot of people denigrate it. You know, it's it's not, I don't know exactly. It's not like you know, right out of the, I don't know what to call it. You know, it's like a John Byrne style or a Dave Cockrum kind of takes from a whole bunch of stuff, but it's, mm. it has his own kind of like unique style, and I do like it. But as far as what he says, uh, I'd say in general, I'm in agreement with what he says about comics and. About yeah. comics, I'm not. We're not more getting into the politics. Not. Just no, more often than not, that, but... maybe, maybe the minutia of it, maybe the bits we might disagree on how to execute, or you know, some uh, things. But in general, I'm, I think I'm in line with him. Yeah, I think a lot of the problem with what he says is, is the, is just like Peter David said, the tone it's set in. Yeah, which is actually you know, true uh, for John Byrne too. We've said that. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with yeah. less of what Byrne says, but there are a lot of things I agree with what Byrne says. I don't Certainly. agree with any of the way he says anything. You know, he really is not a nice. No tact. Yeah, not that kind of guy. But anyway, if that's all we got for him, and again, if you want to talk about any of these subjects, feel free to write to us. We'd love to uh, get into stuff like that. Oh, yeah, that's one more thing. We do have some. Uh, we do have some listener mail uh, in the uh, in the mailbox that okay. we just haven't uh, we haven't we haven't parsed for uh, reading on the air yet. So we will get to that soon. Yeah, we'll get some of those out. We got a really nice, a really nice letter recently that uh, yes, definitely want to read. But anyway, if that's all we got for him, Chris. <laughs> Uh, until next week, I want everyone to keep it on that treadmill savagely. Yeah. Ah!